The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be going back to a story that we covered ooh, two, almost three years ago, I think it is, uh, two years ago. Uh, back in January 2018, the French newspaper Le Monde uh, really did a blockbuster report uh, claiming that the Chinese had bugged the African Union headquarters. And what they kind of documented in the report was following an inspection of the building. Um, that building, by the way, was built by the China State Construction Engineering Corporation, which was a state which is a state-owned company. They uncovered listening devices throughout hidden throughout the building. And apparently at like two or three in the morning, there were, according to the report, uh, big data dumps that were kind of leaving Addis Ababa and going back to China. And then just a few days later after the Le Monde report, uh, that story was apparently then confirmed by the Financial Times. Now, since 2018, that's more or less all we heard. In the immediate aftermath of the Le Monde story, uh, both the AU and pretty much every African leader that I remember across the board they really didn't make much of the scandal. Rwandan President Paul Kagame, who was the AU chairman at the time, he more or less just dismissed the Le Monde report. And he said, uh, let me quote you here, uh, quote, I would be happy if we had the money to build this house, he said, referring to the AU. But even then, if you bring people in to build it for you, they may still spy on you. This may be an attempt to put the Chinese who built the house in a bad light. So Paul Kagame kind of brushing off the spying allegation and even to some extent coming to the defense of the Chinese not surprisingly, the Chinese, for their part, uh, just categorically denied it. They said this is not at all. Huawei denied it as well. Uh, we had a, an interview with Adam Lane, the spokesperson from Huawei. We asked him about that, and he said, nope, there's nothing to it. Now, government buildings in Africa are an interesting topic to be focusing on with regard to the Chinese, because, Cobus, this is a very big push of their infrastructure development program. So they're building stadiums, they build parliaments, they build government headquarters, they're building the new ECOWAS headquarters in uh, in West Africa, they're building the new parliament in uh, Zimbabwe. So there is, you know, if they wanted to spy, that would be the place to do it, Kobus. Yes, and, and you know, they're not only building the buildings, but they're frequently um, outfitting the buildings with, with new um, e-government systems computer systems, internet networks, and so on. Um, so, yeah, again, you're not going to, if they, if they wanted to spy, then this would be a, a big opportunity for them to do so. So the story, Kobus, has really picked up in the past few weeks following a new report published by Joshua Meservi, a senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank in the United States. His report, government buildings in Africa are a likely vector for Chinese spying. And after 10 years of doing this podcast, Kobus, it has taken us too long to get Joshua on the show. So we are so thrilled that you're joining us today. Uh, very good morning to you, Joshua. Thanks, Eric. I'm really pleased to be here. I'm a big fan of, of the podcast and of the China Africa Project. So it's an honor to be on. Well, it's great to have you on uh, and, and really to be able to talk to you about this report. But before we get to 
the your report and and the, all of the different issues related to spying, uh, we would be remiss for not taking advantage of your time here to talk about kind of what's going on in the United States right now as it relates to kind of this dual these dueling narratives that the United States and China are having in a lot of the fields that you cover in the Middle East and Africa, in particular related to the protests that are going on across the United States. Now, this is interesting because uh, there's been a lot of criticisms of China's handling, China and Hong Kong's handling of protests in the territory. The United States government has, and your employer, the Heritage Foundation, have both been very critical of how the Chinese and Hong Kong governments have handled that, both in terms of policy and the new national security policy, and also how Hong Kong police have been handling it. Now, I know Hong Kong is not your specialty, uh, but when you look at the Middle East and Africa and how both the United States and China are trying to establish narratives to tell the world about their moral authority, how do you think what's what's happening now in this intersection between Chinese issues in Hong Kong and policing and America and how the, the Americans are doing it in the United States? Talk to us a little bit about what your impressions are on that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. This is going to be, it already is a talking point in this battle of narratives that is going on. Uh, And this is not a new battle. You can go back to the 50s and read, uh, you know, Chinese communist attacks on the American system, on democracy. Uh, They frequently describe it as chaotic and something that leads to instability and unpredictability, all of which are terrifying to the Chinese Communist Party, of course. Uh, and this, obviously, this, these videos and footage of protests in the United States fits exactly into that narrative that, that China has been pushing. Uh, so I think, you know, I, I think there is a danger here, though, in getting caught up too much in the superficial, um, you know, commonalities between the protests in America and, for instance, the protests in Hong Kong and the respective responses by the police forces, because here in the United States, uh, absolutely, there are injustices and inequities. No one would be so foolish as to claim that there are not, that we have some sort of perfect society. Uh, I think some key differences to focus on, though, are For instance, the sheer amount of video that is coming out is a testament to the freedoms in this country. We have journalists who are embedded in these protests, and there's been no government attempt to silence those voices. There was, of course, the CNN crew that got arrested. Uh, I don't know exactly the details. I suspect that they were not uh, obeying police orders. You know, the press for all of its freedoms does have to obey police orders. Um, so there's, you know, there's there's that difference. And we've already seen some police officers fired for excessive force. Uh, and even with the ugliest videos that you observe where police have to use pepper spray and batons and things of that nature, there is still an effort to de-escalate and to exercise restraint. Again, it's it's not perfect. It's it's ugly, it's unfortunate, particularly given that the US is locked in this in this narrative with China. But uh, any suggestion of, of equivalence between how the Chinese Communist Party unleashes its uh, forces on protesters and, and how the U.S. does is, is completely off base. You know, it's, it's very interesting. Um, 
you know how to see how it's being picked up on social media in in Africa um because there the the narrative isn't really one of of the police of the US police de-escalating the situation in fact there's a lot of videos that seem to show the the police escalating the the situation or like you know kind of moving into aggressively moving into to people who seem to be standing still and and um, and doing and, and peacefully protesting um is there and, and there's a lot of a lot of commentary from from on, on african social media you know echoing you know a, lo- a lot of a lot of the the sentiments coming out of movements like black lives matter um how do you see this playing for the us on the african continent um in the next few weeks well i think it's going to play very poorly uh you know as as you you've referenced these videos and Again, there is a, uh, you know, they can look very bad. The situations can can appear uh, and, and sometimes are uh, just bad. I keep coming back to that word, which is inadequate. But uh, so to these, these images of police moving peaceful protesters, even if you're a peaceful protester, if you are disobeying, police instructions, if you are trespassing, uh, you don't have an, uh, a complete and ultimate right to do whatever you want, even as a peaceful protester. So I think that is why we're seeing police having to move uh, even peaceful protesters back. So I w- work in Washington, D.C., of course, and the protesters appear to uh, be centered around the White House. The police set up a, a perimeter, a barricade, protesters jump those, and then the police push them back. Uh, we wish it wouldn't come to that, but even if you're a peaceful pro- protester, you don't have a right to disobey lawful order and to jump over um, you know, a police barrier. You can do it, uh, but, you, but then you will have to face uh, the consequences. Um, so that's why I think it's... These situations are so hard to accurately convey um, all the complexity of what's going on. And and please don't misunderstand me. There are absolutely abuses. Like I, I'm not making some sort of, of um, blanket exoneration of, of how the police handle these situations. But by and large, uh, on average, our police do act with restraint. Uh, if it were otherwise, there would be a lot more injuries and uh, even deaths in in these situations because these are large protests. There are a lot of videos of, of police being assaulted as well. Um, and again, no one is, is pulling out their weapons and firing and we don't have our military moving through the streets and mowing protesters down. So as, un- as tragic and it does, it absolutely grieves me as an American to watch this going on for all the mistakes that are being made uh, uh, on all sides. Uh, this still is uh, vastly different from the sort of heavy handed abuse you see uh, in places like China, but also even in Africa. Uh, you know, I, I used to live in Zambia and Kenya. If these sorts of protests uh were happening in Lusaka or Nairobi, I think we would have seen a lot more deaths and um, uh, injuries. 
Well, this is certainly a contentious issue and one that will uh, no doubt continue. So we're, we're grateful to be able to divert a little bit of our attention to get your perspective on that. Let's now go to your report. And, and it really, your report got a lot of, a, of coverage. I mean, it was really impressive. And for those of you not familiar with Joshua's work, uh, Joshua regularly uh, interacts with senior level policymakers in the U.S., particularly on Capitol Hill. If you're a big follower of C-SPAN congressional testimonies like I am, you will find Joshua at a lot of the hearings. And so it's really important what he writes. It does get picked up both by conservative media, but also on Capitol Hill and within the power circles in Washington. So this report really did get a lot of coverage. And the narrative was um, that the China is spying on Africa through its buildings. There was very little subtlety that came out, even though I heard your reports and your interviews you were giving and you were putting the nuance in, but in the actual final coverage that came out on Daily Caller or Ben Shapiro and these kind of outlets, it was China is spying on Africa. We're going to get to a little bit more nuanced discussion than what those guys do. Uh, you started your report by saying that Chinese companies have constructed or renovated or both uh, at least 186 buildings and at least 40 of Africa's 54 countries have a government building constructed by a Chinese company. Uh, and you suggest actually that this is a low estimate probably. Uh, why don't you go ahead and just kind of make your case and tell us a little bit about the key findings in your report and, and how you came about that. Yeah, sure. So, uh, right, I'm, I'm glad you uh, you pointed out that there is more nuance in this report than the, the headlines have been picking up. That's the way of the world. I understand how the media works. Um, but I, I do want to stress that I, in this report, I never claim that I have definitive proof that China is using these buildings to spy. Uh, I don't even know how one would get that proof short of uh, someone going in and sweeping these buildings, uh, which, of course, I don't have the capacity to do. Um, so the uh, I essentially went through and tried to find all the instances that I could of a Chinese <clears throat> company constructing one of these buildings or uh, a Chinese bank financing one. And usually if, a, if the Chinese are providing the financing, that means a Chinese company is going to do the work. Um, uh, as you said, I found, I, was, I found a confirmed number of 186. I found 60 other buildings uh, that were mentioned in different sources that I couldn't get confirmation on. I didn't feel strongly enough that the sources were uh, foolproof, uh, so I didn't include those uh, in the final number. But that obviously, you know, if you add, <clears throat> excuse me, the 60 to the 186 number, then we're well above 200. And I think in reality, there's even more than that because it was difficult. This is this was hard work finding these buildings. Some, it's very easy, just a simple Google search you could find. Others were very obscure and it was, it was really tough to dig out information for a whole host of reasons we could get into. Um, so that suggests the that... China has made this a priority to build these sorts of buildings. And that leads to the obvious question of, well, why would they do that? And I think there's a bunch of reasons, but one, the one that I focus on in this report is the potential or the access it would give them to spy on the most senior levels of African governments. Uh, the reason I think the Chinese would be interested in doing this is because one, they, they already have done it um, with, as you mentioned, the 2018 reports that came out about the African Union headquarters. So they have a documented history of doing this. They also have a documented history of 
spying and espionage and things of that nature um, uh, in all sorts of different realms. Uh, so they're sort of famous um, for cyber espionage, particularly um, to gain an economic advantage. Uh, and let me be clear, all countries spy, or all countries want to spy. Uh, some have more capacity to do it than others. So I'm not suggesting that the Chinese are unique in this. Uh, what I am suggesting is the fact that they have built these buildings gives them a unique access to African governments uh, to spy if they so choose, which I'm sure they do. Uh, and just quickly, the final reason I think that they are interested in doing this is because they do place a priority on their African engagements. There's so many metrics on this that we won't bore your, your listeners with, because I'm sure they're familiar with them, but China does value uh, Africa, and that presumably makes Africa worth surveilling. You know, one of one of the issues that you that you raised in your your previous answer um, is the difficulty of of doing big sweeps of these buildings. Um, and the, you know, the one the the one case where, which which many people mention is the African Union one, which is where I think the the particular things that were found, and you know, it's that 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 original Le Monde article still raises some questions. Um, and some of those were were echoed by uh, we so we were looking around for for responses to your to your report. Um, and one that we found is a, a journalism researcher in Lesotho uh, called Tuso Mosabala, who, who tweeted, um, to date, I still await a reliable source that speak to the discovery of such devices in any of the Chinese built infrastructure. Um, how do you answer that kind of question about the considering the difficulty of actually like, you know, like, ra like raising your hand and showing like, here's the bug that we found? So short of being able to get physical evidence, uh, which again would be virtually impossible because one, African governments would never give you access to these buildings, nor should they really, to you know, me as a private citizen to conduct some sort of sweep, and I wouldn't know how to do it anyways. Um, but uh, two, these activities by their nature are covert. So these would be pretty well hidden. Uh, it would take a certain amount of technical expertise to discover them. That's exactly what happened with the AU. Uh, apparently, according to the, the reports, you know, the Algerians, who are quite good at this sort of thing, came in and uh, swept the building, as did the Ethiopians. Both, both countries, unsurprisingly, have uh, pretty high capacity in these areas. Um, so I think what we're left with, short of... Uh, any sort of, of physical proof, which again would be very, very difficult to, get, to obtain, is our rational process. And I think any sort of rational process based on China's history, uh, based on how great powers operate, uh, based on China's particular proclivity for all sorts of types of espionage, that it leads us to the conclusion that it is far more likely than not that China has is actively surveilling at least some of these buildings. Now, some buildings are small enough and insignificant enough that I'm not sure the, the Chinese would bother. So, for instance, in Namibia, I found some municipal courts and municipal government buildings I'm less convinced maybe that they would put in the effort to surveil those. Potentially they would, I, I don't know, but you know, I, I, I'm less convinced, as I say. But certainly a uh, president's residence, uh, as they've built all across the continent, or a prime minister's office, uh, those were just so attractive as 
you know, surveillance targets that I find it very difficult indeed to believe that there is not Chinese surveillance of these buildings. So I understand the criticism of, well, there's no actual proof, but I would always ask, I mean, how could you possibly expect to get like true physical proof of this happening where operate, you know, this is the world of espionage and surveillance. It's by definition covert and secret, and it takes highly technical skills to discover these sorts of things. So we are left with a rational process. And I think a rational process based on what we know of the Chinese system, what we know of how they operate, what we know of their history, very strongly um, leads us to the conclusion that, yes, they must be surveilling some of these uh, buildings. So what was the point then of your report? Because it was supposition. I mean, it's again, what you said was you don't have the actual evidence. So you're kind of connecting some dots that seem to make sense to you. So you, you put the report. Is the, re- the purpose of the report to get people to think about this, to get policymakers in Washington to consider it? Is it to be provocative? If you don't have the proof, then what's the point of the report? Yeah, so it's the former. I had no intention of of being provocative. I understand the findings are provocative, but that was not uh, the reason I did the report. The reason I did the report was because I think this is an underappreciated problem in American policy circles. And I think there are a host of implications to the reality that China has built a lot of these government buildings. And the fact that they are almost certainly surveilled uh, should cause some deep reflection among our military leaders, among our diplomatic leaders, and among our companies, our, the American companies that are increasingly active on the continent. Because, uh, and, I, and I get into that a, uh, a fair amount in the report where I lay out some recommendations. And uh, I, I think ultimately this was trying to ring a warning bell that... This is a very serious liability for the United States that we need to account for and need to think very seriously about as we engage in Africa, as we are increasingly in this era of open competition with China. We need to understand all of China's uh, tools, all of its strengths uh, in order to formulate our own approach. In reading the report, what struck me was that you know that there's there's a lot of the, obviously as as you say there's a lot of attention on on what China possibly um, you know probably might be doing, um, and then also you know so, so a, a lot of the the possible fallout for for the U.S. Um, However, there doesn't seem to be a lot of attention in the report to the current surveillance that the U.S. is doing in Africa. Um, you know, there's um, a case, you know, that was raised both on the Intercept and by in several Human Rights Watch reports that uh, NSA agents not only surveilled in in Ethiopia but but actually actively trained the Ethiopian government in surveillance, which then then ended up not only on on large scale crackdowns on opposition groups in Ethiopia but actually also the surveillance of Ethiopian expatriates in the U.S. So you know so it ended up facilitating the you know the spying by a foreign government on U.S. soil of people who in some in mean, in some cases are were by then either legal U.S. citizens or or green card holders. So, you know, like, how do you balance those two? So with the, uh, your, your latter example of, of training Ethiopian uh, surveillance, 
you know, the U.S. has, uh, you know, training programs, uh, military training programs all across the continent, and they are usually primarily or almost always focused on uh, improving the capacity of indigenous forces to fight terrorism. And surveillance is part of that. One of the most uh, coveted tools that the U.S. gets asked for is ISR, Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance. That's usually drones and things of that nature because gathering information is very difficult, uh, but it's critical. You have to have that information in order to effectively fight these groups. Now, the challenge for the United States is that uh, let's take Ethiopia. It's a, it's a really good example of this. When we go in there, and Ethiopia is absolutely involved in the fight against terrorism. They have troops inside of Somalia fighting al-Shabaab. They have domestic terrorism problems. And the United States uh, is wants to help the Ethiopians combat that, that challenge because it's a dual challenge um, uh, in the sense that it affects the United States' interests as well. Uh, so you give, you know, you, you train up these militaries uh, and police forces on these capacities, and then you have very little control over how they use these capacities. So the Ethiopians are using the capabilities we've given them to fight groups like Al-Shabaab. But then, unfortunately, given the nature of, maybe we should say the former regime, since there's a new uh, new power in town, uh they also turn that against their their citizens. I don't I don't at all doubt that. Uh, we've had the same problem in Kenya. So the anti-terrorism police units, uh, which you know anti-terrorism is right in their name. Their their raison d'être is to fight terrorism. They've also unfortunately engaged in a lot of excesses uh, at times, particularly on the coast. And that's a really hard dilemma for the United States because we can't be everywhere fighting terrorism every place it rears its its evil head. That would just, it's, it's far beyond our capacity. So the strategy, particularly in Africa, is to equip and uh, equip local forces, give them the capacity, the capability to, uh, to take on these challenges themselves. And always a part of that training is 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 human rights training and uh, other ideals like civilian control of the military, things of that nature. But the reality of the world we live in is there's only so much you can do there. Unfortunately, I I, I wish we could guarantee that um, you know the training we give to these forces would not be turned on their citizens. And we even have laws uh, in the United States, like the Leahy Amendment, for instance, that makes it uh, illegal for the United States to give any sort of aid to military units that have been credibly accused of human rights abuses. So, you know, we, we try to address this problem, but it's it's a deeply imperfect system that that we keep working on. Um, and we just hope that eventually we can persuade these governments to use these capabilities as they've been intended to be used. 
But you can understand the reaction that a lot of people had to your report and also suspicions about the United States in the wake of the Snowden files from a couple of years ago, which revealed widespread espionage in for not the noble reasons that you're talking about. I mean, tapping Angela Merkel's phone, sweeping up the entire phone network of Spain, Mexico. I mean, just massive amounts of illegal spying on people who are not a national security threat. Uh, to the United States, or even a national security interest to the United States. But it was just sucking up data because they could. And so when, I guess the reaction that when a report like yours comes out, and people, you say, for example, that the Chinese are spying, well, people say, well, listen, the United States got busted for spying. We don't know if they're spying. But as you pointed out with the Chinese, if you connect the rational dots together, they probably are. And so the United States is probably doing, according to the same logic that you're using for them, Probably doing the same thing today, wouldn't you? Can wouldn't you think that's equally as reasonable? Well, no, um, for for a couple of reasons here. One is that the NSA spying, uh, you know, you described it as illegal, but uh, you know, it this gets into very murky legal territory, and there was a. Uh, a covert court system that governed some elements of this. Uh, so there was some level of, of legal control from the United States over it. Now, that's a technicality. I don't think that brings much comfort to anybody. Um, but there but there is that element. Uh, but the United States uses intelligence in very different ways than, than the Chinese do. And again, we're talking about a very murky world here, so it's hard to say with, with real you know, uh, definitive uh, proof of, of this. But we do know that the Chinese, they hoover up data um, for uh, to launch economic espionage campaigns. And I remember several years ago, I actually cited this in my report, uh, the a U.S. trade um, representative uh, report found that uh, the U.S. loses some something on the order of fifty billion dollars every year to this sort of Chinese activity, uh, and there's there's other examples of of reports that have documented that a very significant part of China's technological uh, leaps and bounds that they've made are is built off of stolen technology, stolen uh, intellectual property, or the coerced transfer of intellectual property. This is very well documented. Um, so this is how China uses, uh, surveillance. They use it to give a profoundly unfair advantage to its domestic companies, including its so-called private companies like Huawei, which in reality aren't, you know, there's very little distinction between uh, a private company in, in the Chinese context and a state-owned company, um, so that's how they, they are using this technology and, uh, and I'm sure they're they're also using it for all the other purposes that states use um, or surveillance for. Uh, that that to me is the distinction. And then in the African context, uh, I think what makes China unique is that they have unprecedented access. Uh, that that was the point of this report. And nowhere in this report do I argue that the United States does not spy. I mean, that, that's foolishness. We know it spies. I, as an American citizen, am very happy that my government spies on other countries. Uh, Germany spies on other countries. Uh, African countries spy on each other. Uh, this is how states operate in the international system. Uh, 
but I write, my primary audience is the United States government. And I was highlighting a particular vulnerability that the U.S. is facing in Africa because American companies have not built 186 uh, Afghan government buildings on the continent, at least 186. In reality, it's it's almost certainly in the 200s range. Uh, we haven't built prime ministers' offices and and mofas and and parliaments. Uh, so China has more opportunity to surveil than anyone does on the continent. Uh, it's 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 clearly a part of their entire engagement strategy. Uh, and we know that, again, because of how widely they use uh, surveillance and espionage uh, all across the world, uh, not just against the United States. As I say, all across the world, the, the Germans have estimated that around 20% of the losses, they of the billions of dollars of annual losses they suffer every year due to Chinese attacks. So Europe faces this problem. Uh, other Asian countries face this problem. And if African countries come up with, I, I sound this warning in the report, if African countries, um, many of which do have a nascent tech scene, an emergent tech scene, if, if they do come up, if they come up with certain technology that the Chinese government or one of its companies finds interesting, I think they'll steal it. Uh, I think that's absolutely a vulnerability that Afghan uh, economies are facing right now. There is there's no documented case of the United States government stealing economic information to advantage uh, its companies. It's, uh, it's just not something the U.S. does. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. So where does where does the center of your concern fall? Um, mostly, you know, are, are you mostly um, worried about civil liberties in Africa? Are you mostly worried about the say, for example, the African tech sector, or or is it more falling on on you know kind of the the, the possible implications for for U.S. government and, and military operations and U.S. companies on on the continent? Um, because as as you point out, a lot of a lot of African um, governments seem pretty happy with the Chinese to the extent that, for example, even after the scandal, um, the African Union, you know, was qu- very quick to to kind of re resign another another three year deal with with Huawei soon after that scandal. So the uh, well, interesting. My understanding of of what happened after the AU headquarters bugging was that. Um, the AU actually said thanks, but no thanks to to Huawei on that um, because or and they also uh, I think uh, the Chinese government offered to provide some sort of uh, network sweeping or network security, and they said no, the Algerians and the Ethiopians will handle it. But I, I I'll look into that. Um, yeah. So my my primary concern again. My organization's audience is the U.S. government, specifically Capitol Hill, uh, but also the executive, of course. So I write for American policymakers. Those are the ones that my organization tries to influence. So my concern is mostly on 
uh, what are the implications of this phenomenon on the continent for U.S. national interests. Now, I happen to think that uh, the reason the United States is such a um, an attractive partner to, or should be an attractive partner to a lot of African countries, is that American national interests uh, strongly overlap with the uh, general well-being of the average African. So by that, I mean the U.S. is interested in promoting democracy and the rule of law, uh, which is the ultimate protector of, of the ordinary person. It's interested in promoting free markets, uh, because and free markets are the most consistent uh, and most well-proven um, uh, method of, of uh, raising people from poverty. So, you know, as the U.S. and the U.S. obviously is fighting terrorism around the world and is guaranteeing the free and safe passage of global commerce on the seas, things of that nature. So, uh, American national interests, as I say, very strongly overlap with the interests of ordinary Africans. Um, so as I advocate here in this report for American national interests, I think that there is a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of good that uh, could, could accrue to African states Um you know, by, for instance, partnering with the U.S. Uh, on on some of these issues, but I'm also not naive. I, I understand, you know, and and I think the U.S. has moved away or was never even fully invested in this narrative that you know it's it's us or China like that. You know, African states are sovereign; they they can make their own decisions, and they have reasons for interacting and engaging with China, and some of them are very good reasons. So I think it's it's more that the U.S. wants to see its model that has brought peace and prosperity uh, to its own country, but also virtually every developed country on earth has embraced capitalism and, and free markets and the rule of law and democracy. There are very few exceptions. China would be one, even though they, you know, they have granted some level of economic freedom. Uh, Singapore would perhaps be the other one. Um, so I think... Uh, you know, as I, like I said, as I advocate for uh, American interests, I think that, um, you know, that's actually, as American interests advance, it's actually beneficial to places like Africa. And just to clarify, uh, so I just, while you were talking, looked up the whether Huawei renewed and uh, by June 7th, 2019, so a little bit after that report, uh, Salem Solomon, who is a VOA reporter in Washington, wrote, after allegations of spying, African Union renews Huawei alliance. So apparently they did actually pick up uh, their relationship afterwards. Fascinating. Yeah. So uh, yeah. let's turn to some Chinese reaction to it. So uh, you were honored, and I say that, you know, really, that is an honor, uh, that uh, Chinese uh, foreign ministry spokesman, the original, the OG wolf warrior, uh, Zhao Jian, he called your report ridiculous. <laughs> I, again, I think that's quite an honor, you know, that you were mentioned at the foreign ministry press briefing. Uh, he referred to the Heritage Foundation as a, quote, certain think tank in the U.S., so I didn't say your name. You were then, uh, your report was also shared by the 
the Chinese embassy in Uganda, and they were kind enough to put a link to the report. So that was nice. While they were denouncing it, uh, nonetheless, uh, we reached out to to some folks to get some reaction. And uh, one person who got back to us was Ambassador Guang Weiling. He's the first Chinese ambassador to the African Union. He's emerged as a kind of a uh, retired diplomat who can speak a little bit more freely, and he was on our show recently. He's now very, very active on Twitter. And uh, uh, apologies in advance for the audio quality. Unfortunately, WeChat does not let you extract audio from it, so I had to do it the old-fashioned way and hold up my phone to the microphone, but hopefully you can listen. Let's take a listen to question and comments by Ambassador Guang Weiling. My question is, after disclosure by Snowden, people know much about prison and what U.S. government agencies such as NSA and CIA are up to around the world. They feel naked. At present, some Americans have a strange mindset. China is bad and whatever it does is bad. It is as unscrupulous as U.S. and does things just as we Americans do. Early 2018, just before the EU summit, The French newspaper Le Monde made a piece of sensational news about so-called China's surveillance at AU headquarters built by China. Both Chinese and AU officials categorically refuted. That was sheer fabrication against basic norms of media. The claim in your report is of same nature. It is true that China has helped African countries build many government buildings. But can it be a tenable reason you suspect China may take advantage of it for secret purposes? When you make the claim in your book about China, do you have hard evidence or just excellent imagination to make it a sensation? There is a fitting Chinese proverb going like this. A thief is always suspicious of people around him and believes they may also steal something from him. Thank you. So you've already addressed the question of proof. You've talked about Snowden. I'd like to kind of get your sense on his tone and the general vibe that you've been getting from the Chinese in response to your report. (laughs) I was sort of chuckling to myself as I listened because it's it's really classic, uh, you know, Chinese approach or Chinese diplomatic approach to these sorts of issues. Um, Yeah, so... uh, the uh, vibe, uh, you know, you described the foreign, Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, response. Uh, you, you forgot uh, that they accused me of self-inflicted humiliation um, by, uh, by publishing the report. And as I joked on Twitter, I'm, I'm actually quite adept at self-inflicted humiliation. The report is just not one of those instances. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, it's... Uh, Chinese propaganda is fascinating um, because it is uh, frequently uh, trying to think of how even to to say this uh, in an articulate fashion, but uh, what they frequently say the exact opposite of reality, right? And that's a clumsy way of putting it, but um, you know, you can think of Orwell's Newspeak or, or something like that, where. Uh, they will say things like, well, in Xinjiang, 
uh, we absolutely respect human rights and religious freedom, and we actually promote it. Well, no, you have between one and two million uh, ethnic minorities and religious minorities in what are essentially concentration camps. This, again, is extraordinarily well documented. They will say, well, you know, we are a responsible global actor. We believe in you know, um, uh, you know, global rules and multilateralism and the democratization of international relations while they are gobbling up the South China Seas and bullying all of these smaller countries um, that uh, are, are party to that conflict. You know, China has border disputes with every single one of its neighbors, uh, including its maritime neighbors. Uh, the common denominator there is China. Uh, they will say, well, we don't, you know, they, you know, they famously say, we don't meddle in, in internal affairs, there are no strings attached to our engagement, that's foolishness. Um, you know, there, there's plenty of examples, even just in Africa, of, of meddling in internal affairs, such as in Zambia, when Michael Sata was running for the presidency, and the Chinese ambassador held a press conference and threatened uh, Zambian voters, essentially, that if they uh, elected Michael Sata, then they would, you know, Chinese companies would stop investing and uh, the Chinese government would likely de-recognize uh, or, or break relations, diplomatic relations with Zambia. Uh, Ian Kama, the, the former president um, in uh, Botswana, gave a fascinating interview around an instance when he invited the Dalai Lama to come visit Botswana. And he was expressly threatened by the Chinese ambassador. Um, and I, I encourage anyone to, to go read that. Um, yeah, that's well documented. Similarly in South Africa, too, where they just lost right. the visa applications of the Dalai Lama. Yeah, right. Three I know, times, extraordinary. I um, so, you know, uh, so Chinese propaganda is fascinating. They, they clearly have a very disciplined uh, message strategy. You know, you can almost... Uh, you know, if, if you're at all familiar with, with Chinese propaganda to Africa, when an, an official visits, you can almost play, you know, phrase bingo, like, okay, we're going to have, um, you know, win-win cooperation, uh, you know, people-to-people -people warm ties, uh, you know, community of common destiny, and, and all these other phrases, right? Um, but they're all meaningless, ultimately. They, they mean something to the Chinese Communist Party, but in practice, uh, they are propaganda. And there is, I don't think there's any country on earth that operates as cynically and amorally as the Chinese government, while accusing everyone else of, of doing that. Um, and this is, you know, this is likely to continue. And, and I think there's actually a, a dawning realization among many of its part, maybe not many, but at least some of its partners that uh, who have engaged very closely with Beijing, that there are indeed very serious costs that come with engaging this regime um, that is uh, just, that is willing to punish um, if, if you cross it in any sort of way. Australia is, is experiencing that right now as we speak. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm not surprised by the reaction you played there. 
I was surprised the Ministry of Foreign Affairs addressed the reports because, uh, as you and I have discussed, Eric, these sorts of, you know, there are negative reports that are negative about China that get written frequently coming out of D.C. So I actually took their response as uh, some concern from them that I was getting really close to the mark here and they wanted to try to nip this in the bud as quickly as possible. As the rest of the of the election year goes on and as you know as as the the impacts of of issues like the the global depression and the the covid-19 infection um as they kind of drag on um we we've seen the the Trump administration becoming increasingly you know kind of vocal in its opposition to China um very very critical of China um how do you see this this kind of conflict playing out um in Africa particularly yeah it's it's unfortunate. Um, you know, I really wish, and I, and I know the U.S. government wishes, that the relationship was not this way with China. Uh, the reality is that for several decades, the United States has tried very, very hard to draw China deeper into the international system. We championed its accession to the WTO, for instance, uh, with the belief that that would have... Um, and uh, a salutary effect on Chinese government activity and that they would start to behave like a responsible international actor and that they would uh, loosen up uh, some of the, the, loosen the authoritarian grip they have over their people. Um, and so it's, it's, it's very unfortunate that that has not happened. In fact, it's, it's gone in the opposite direction, particularly under this pres, uh, President Xi Jinping. Uh, this is... In practical terms, I don't know that this is going to affect Africa that dramatically. Now, clearly, any sort of global economic fallout, if there is, as we if we move towards decoupling, that would have an effect, of course, on on the continent. But for right now, Africa has a long history of balancing between superpowers, great powers going back to the Cold War, of course, where uh, China and the Soviet Union and, and China were all, uh, or excuse me, the U.S., the Soviet Union and China were all uh, engaged on the continent uh, in, in very hostile activities sometimes. So um, these countries do have a history of trying to walk that fine line and, and balance all sides. And I think the U.S. actually, uh, there's no demand from the U.S. that, uh, you know, our, our African friends abandon their their Chinese uh, engagements. I think what is actually happening is that there's a lot of thought to how the U.S. can make it clearer the make clear the benefits of of partnering with the U.S. on on certain issues, and so in the tech space, for instance, there's a lot of work on alternatives to five G. There's some very promising technology there that, if it does uh, come to fruition, would be hugely beneficial to the continent because it would be a cheap alternative to Huawei and a dependable alternative to Huawei, and it wouldn't come with all the risks of, uh, you know, backdoors in the technology and things of that nature that um, that characterize Huawei technology. So um, I, I understand the African concern. I, I would be very concerned myself were I uh, an African leader right now. I think they're going to have to be skillful and wise uh, as they try to work through this new reality of open confrontation between China and the United States. I 
do think the U.S. might move towards, and I am advocating for this, I actually have a piece coming out fairly soon that makes this case explicitly, that the U.S. does need to do a strategic assessment of the continent and decide which governments can we reasonably expect to have a positive relationship with, because... There are some that for a number of reasons, including the fact that they're so heavily enmeshed with with Beijing, that we can't really expect to make much headway for American national interests by engaging with them. That doesn't mean we entirely disengage, but it does mean those countries we feel like have the requisite level of competent and fair and democratic governance, that's usually the key here, um, that we sort of double down on those countries. So that could have an effect on on the continent. Positive uh, for, for some countries, potentially less positive for others. I want to go back very quickly before we wrap up our discussion, because I know you're so busy and I'm, we're really grateful for the time you're giving us here, uh, about Chinese reaction again. And I just, I reached out to a, a contact who is an intelligence analyst in China, uh, private sector, not government. And uh, he said your report was ridiculous, but not for the same reason that Zhao Jian did. And his assessment was that uh, bugging buildings is not a technology that people use that much anymore. That if the Chinese want to spy on people, they've built the telecom network, they can tap the phones, they can... There's many more efficient ways of hoovering up data, as you've, as you've said, rather than putting the old-fashioned bugs in the concrete that people can kind of sweep. It's it's through phishing, uh, malware, and things like that. That and These are practices that lots of governments, the United States, Iran, Russia, China, uses to, to great sophistication. The Chinese in particular uh, have a reputation of being quite good at this. So his assessment was that your, uh, your, your lack of inclusion and focus on the digital and the cyber espionage reveals an antiquated thinking in terms of how the Chinese now are bugging things. You know, I don't know how much insight he has or doesn't have into this. I, this was just his reaction to it. And I'd be curious to get your feedback on that. Yeah, I I think we absolutely are in a different age, obviously, from the 60s, right, or the 70s or the 80s when, when bugging physical microphones in the walls were... Uh, you know, appeared to be the main thrust of this sort of espionage. But remember, the AU found physical phones, physical microphones in their walls. So it clearly wasn't ridiculous a couple of years ago. Now, that I was think three it's, years ago, which is still quite a long time ago in uh, in technology terms. Sure, sure. Um, but I think there's uh, and and in the in the report, I actually do mention the fact uh, right up front and, and then later on as well that, um, you know, Chinese companies have built at least 14 uh, intra-governmental telecommunication networks, so supposedly secure networks. Um, it's really extraordinary, actually. Uh, you know, Kenya, Zambia, Uganda, uh, Huawei has built these IT, ICT systems that essentially store all government data. Um, which again, I, I find extraordinary. But um, so I, I absolutely do address that. That was not the focus of this report. Uh, this report, um, you know, started as a more holistic look at Chinese influence uh, on the continent. 
And then because I found so many of these buildings, I just decided, okay, I'm just going to focus on the espionage side of this. But there is a lot that you could say about political influence, for instance, and I do reference it in this report. But I think that's actually potentially the greater danger here for the United States of, of having all these buildings built by, by Chinese companies. Uh, and then I also, in the report, I reference, um, you know, Beijing donating computers and other types of hardware. I think I found at least 35 African governments that have received that sort of, of uh, tech um, hardware from, from Beijing. So I, I'm sure that the, the main focus is more in the digital space for espionage now, but I find it very, very, very difficult to believe indeed that if a Chinese company has built a president's residence, that they would not have some interest in putting a listening device in the walls. Uh, would it? That does not at all mean that that would be uh, China's main focus uh, of its espionage in in that particular context. But again, I think uh, every little bit helps, of course, and. You know, you, you could potentially pick up something uh, from a microphone that you would not be able to get over a digital network. So the report is government buildings in Africa are a likely vector for Chinese spying. You can find it at the Heritage Foundation website at heritage.org. It was written by Joshua Meservi, who is a senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation and very well known in the high level policy circles in Washington for Africa, the Middle East and China. Uh, so, Joshua, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time to share your your insights on this report. Thank you so much for having me. I, I genuinely enjoyed it. It was a great conversation. Wonderful. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? Uh, they could just Google me, just Joshua Mazervi Heritage, and that would take me to or take them, excuse me, to uh, my bio page on Heritage, which lists my heritage writing. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter um, at Jay Mazervi. Um, uh, so those are, or on LinkedIn, I'm also on LinkedIn. So those are the the three best ways to... We'll put links to all of that in the show notes for people to be able to connect with what you're doing and stay on top of the research that you're putting out. Uh, once again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Kobus. Kobus, the most important takeaway is the fact that a guy like Joshua is not writing for a global audience. He's not writing for an African audience. He's writing for not even an American audience, but a Capitol Hill White House State Department audience. I mean, the, the circle of people that, that he's targeting with this kind of report is very, very small. And so I think when, when we see it out in the universe, it gets taken out of context and starts to be fit into all of these different narratives. As I mentioned in the beginning of the show, the framing of the report in the conservative media that he did a lot of interviews with, and this is not his responsibility or burden, was China is spying on Africa. And as we can hear, he was very upfront in saying, well, he doesn't know that for sure. He's just, you know, supposing that they're building the buildings, they have a track record of doing this. And, you know, it's probably happening. And that's, I remember back when you and I did our show on this topic in 2018, one of my takeaways was, does, is China spying on the African Union? Yeah, probably. Why? Because that's what big governments do. Uh, people don't talk about the fact that Le Monde, two years prior to the Chinese report on African Union spying, issued a report that the British were spying across Africa. 
and tapped phones of the African heads of state and business leaders. They, they, they tapped, you know, they were spying on intelligence chiefs, members of opposition parties. I mean, it was extensive British spying across the continent. And yet here we are now, four years later, never mentioning British spying, but mentioning Chinese spying to, a, okay, again, totally different context, not defending and not doing whataboutism here. But it is interesting how people latch on to different things, even though the actions are more or less the same. With this, you, you get an interesting, an interesting view of the weird role that the West at, at large and then the US particularly is, is playing in the world at the moment, where kind of all different things about the US are true at the same time, you know, in the sense that they, yeah, sure, they, they are they are promoting democracy in some cases, in some ways around the world. They also are, in you know, in, in many cases, you know, kind of undermining multilateral institutions that, that could have, you know, kind of helped small countries like in Africa to get a, a fairer deal. They are spying and also they are pointing out the spying of other countries. It's, it's that they're playing such a contradictory role that it's it's very difficult to to kind of pinpoint you know kind of exactly where like which us one is dealing with you know kind of when when one is when one is in a place like africa but isn't that the same with the chinese this is the the chinese are supporting a three billion dollar coal plant in zimbabwe and at the same time promoting the green belt road the belt and road in places like zambia with a half a billion dollar solar panel you know you know electric farm they're doing the good and the bad sit side by side very closely to one another. And it seems like the U.S. is really no different in this case. It's hard to get Americans to acknowledge that, but we can do that on this show, that they're very similar in that sense. Yeah, but the Chinese isn't isn't also selling themselves as, as promoters of democracy, you know. Um, the Chinese never, never pretend that they're anything else than what they are, which is a big centralized authoritarian state. Like, you know, in fact, when you speak to Chinese diplomats, they make very eloquent cases about why that's the best system to have. Um, you know, the, the U.S. has always had, and this is, this, I think, has been true since the Cold War, has always had this kind of contradictory position where it is simultaneously selling its own position on civil liberties while, in many cases, actively undermining civil liberties in other countries and in its own country. You know, so, so for example, the, the you know the for example like like you know promoting the idea of capitalism and free markets as as a space for for self-improvement and liberal liberalization and 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 civil liberties and, and freedom true you know in in some cases but at the same time the u.s's economic system i think a lot of people have been pointing out that you know a lot of it is is based on the fact that that certain people are permanently stuck in in low-wage low contract service positions and they can't get out of them um you know so so it, it's this weird thing where where it's both the, the u.s is always always somehow like both brandishing the ideal and the counter ideal at the same time uh, and i think people people's relationship with the u.s is always always has to it's, it's, it's you know kind of you either you either kind of like super supporting it or super criticizing it or at some stage you kind of you settle into a weird kind of double think you know kind of where where you choose which US you tend to you tend to engage with because there are so many um, you know like where where the US, US for example is both the 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 great promoter of of something like LGBT rights and the great 
a promoter of anti-LGBT discourse. You know, both of those are happening at the same time, and and you kind of have to choose the U.S. you want to live with in the end. Well, we were very glad in order when in our discussions about the U.S. to be able to have a conservative voice like Joshua join us. It's something that we've been trying to do for several years now to be able to kind of bring more conservative voices because, in part, if you want to understand U.S. foreign policy today. Uh, you have to understand that conservative way of thinking, simply because there is a, a whole professional class now of conservatives. And then, of course, there's the political class of appointees and senior level uh, officials who are also very, very conservative. And I think that's poorly understood by the outside world. So it's one of the things we're going to try and do uh, you know, going forward is to be able to bring you more conservative voices and, and along with a mix of voices on U.S. foreign policy, just, of course, as we try and do uh, with all of our discussions that we have. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Copus Knight will be back again next week. Uh, we're closing in this year on 500 episodes. We're now doing about two episodes per week. So if you have a little bit of catching up to do, you can go to chinaafricaproject.com slash podcasts with an S and you'll get all of our back catalog going back uh, 10 years actually and so it's kind of a fun way to kind of see the progression of China-Africa relations over the past 10 years just looking at that back catalog and of course if you'd like to follow the day-to-day the minutia of what's going on we really love to have you part of our reader community of our daily email newsletter that Cobus and I put out where we're tracking the news, donations, COVID-19, all of the different things that are going on in the China-Africa relationship, again, at the most minute level. A lot of folks in Washington, D.C., in Brussels, in African capitals are reading this newsletter every day, and we would love for you to join as well and become a reader. Just go again to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. You'll get two weeks free, and we'll throw in a half off discount for students and teachers. So uh, let us, you know, let us know what you think. Uh, if you'd like to, you know, reach out to Cobus and I, we're so easy to get a hold of. Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com and then Cobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Just drop us a note. Uh, until then, until next week, we'll be back and we'll see you then. Thanks so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash ChinaAfricaProject to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>